First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the first time that I am preaching on just one verse, just focusing on one. Uh, In some circles, uh, that's kind of what's to be expected. Um, Normally here, we we take larger chunks. you know, but one verse here, one verse there, some places that's that's the norm. And before I attempt that, I want to note that uh, there are some dangers that can be involved in just one verse. You know, doing that exclusively can lead to the danger of the preacher just picking and choosing the things that he wants to preach on and Eventually, you stop hearing anything about the places in the Bible that he doesn't want to preach on, for whatever reason. And that's bad for the church, and that's bad for the preacher. Because God not only gave us the Bible, but he gave us the whole Bible. He didn't give us long lists of verses to pluck. He gave us books and sentences organized into paragraphs, into chapters. And without understanding that, we will lose something truly important. You know that the Apostle Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the Bible is meant to do that. It is the instrument that does that. And our minds are renewed when we use the Bible for more than data collection. We need to understand the truth written as an organized whole. That organization in the broadest sense can be expressed in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. As the women of the church have been looking at for several years now with pursuit. See, your mind is renewed when you see that the organizational pattern in the Bible, you see it in such a way that you start to use that view to look at other parts of life. Let me kind of explain this. So you say that you're at home or you're at work and the printer just stops doing what you ask. Now. I know that's probably never happened to you. Nobody else in here has ever had a computer issue. But if you can imagine, now, if you read the Bible only by picking out the verses and using them when you think they're handy, you might snatch hold of Philippians 4.13. But you can stand there yelling at the printer, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me until you're blue in the face, and it will not work. Because printers know no fear. Now, instead, 
If you were to look at the same issue, but address it by looking through the structure of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you may be tempted to think that the printer is an instrument of the devil sent only to test your patience. But you know that everything that God created was originally good, very good. And whatever problems, thorns, thistles, network errors, are a result of sin entering God's good creation. So the real problem isn't that you need to get out the door with that recipe you were trying to print 10 minutes ago, and now the kids have taken their shoes off for the third time because the printer just didn't do it fast enough. And now you're just ready to throw the whole thing out and just be done relying on technology. Now the real problem isn't the printer. The real problem is that you're a sinner and thorns and thistles and even printer problems sprang up as a curse for sin in the world. Death and decay, things not working how they should, things wearing out, they're now normal in this world. But that is not God's original design. And in fact, he's not leaving it this way. He's done something about it. Redemption. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to undo the fall and the curse of sin? Yes. Jesus did come so you could have forgiveness for cussing out a printer, for being short with your family, and carrying some under-the-surface anger at everyone at that Walmart. But he also came so that you could know freedom from the grip of the sin of anger, and of the sin of needing to be in control, and of the sin of unbelief. And it is unbelief that's under all these sins. Thinking that if God really cared about you, he wouldn't give you such problems to deal with. So you take those sins and you hand them over to Christ. And I know it's hard. Sometimes we are used to the whole, well, you've got to you know, give your life to Jesus. But you also have to give every terrible, horrible thing about yourself to Jesus. And that's somewhat harder because we want to keep that hidden. We've worked at hiding it for so long. Peter knows about this. When Jesus performed a miracle before him, Peter said to him, Get out of here, Lord. I'm a sinner. I can't even be around you. Just leave me alone. Leave me be. And in kindness, Jesus ignored Peter's request. And instead, knelt down to wash his feet. And finally, you can look forward to the day of restoration, when Jesus returns visibly to reign eternally and take away 
all the curse and stain of sin. Yes, there will be no printer problems in the new heavens and the new earth. Although, I'm not so certain if they won't be in hell. So how do you avoid the problems involved with preaching on or quoting just one verse? Do you need to avoid doing that altogether? Well, the way to avoid that is context. Context. Looking at the verses surrounding whatever passage you're looking at and seeing how it all fits together. You then look at the paragraphs surrounding that, and then you keep expanding your view, and you can see the chapters around that, and the books around that, and then all of a sudden, you're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You know, if you quote, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, like the first example, you're ignoring the context. Because Paul didn't say that so that one of us could come and claim that as a way to get victory for our sports team. If you look even just two verses before that, you'll see that he can't possibly mean that. Look what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's Paul saying? He says, when he had nothing to his name, and he was going hungry, he could still be content. And when he had plenty and needed nothing, he could still be content, which is actually the harder of the two. Then he explained how. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, what Paul's saying here is that Christ kept him from falling into either the sin of prideful, I got it under control because I have enough stuff, or the sin of grumbling unbelief, why doesn't God let me have this? I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm tired. He's saying Christ kept him from those two sins. So what's the context for our verse today? Well, the last time I preached in March, I preached on this entire section from verse 11 through verse 25. And then what I had said the point of the sermon was, is that unbelievers accuse Christians of doing evil, but Christians' good deeds will show that that accusation is a lie and God will be glorified through it all. Now, another way I could put this is this. God is glorified when his people face injustice and endure 
by entrusting their lot to him. Now, I, I, I chose the word lot because it's not just our lives that we entrust to him. It's our homes, it's our money, it's our abilities, it's our inabilities. It's our children, it's our everything. If we look further at the context of this verse, we see that it is in a paragraph specifically addressed to slaves. Verse 18 in your Bible, you see the word servants. Now I say slaves because even though the word, the particular word that Peter uses refers to like domestic workers, you might say cooks and butlers and maids, you know, they, they would have had maybe, maybe a wage, maybe some liberties, but they were still considered a lesser kind of human compared to their free masters in the Roman world of Asia Minor where they lived. And there was certainly a danger of suffering injustice every day. But see, Peter doesn't say that that's a bad thing. He doesn't condemn the institution of slavery. He doesn't even tell them to try to get out of it or put a stop to it. Although in other places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul does say, if it's possible for a slave to purchase his freedom, go for it. But what Peter is doing by bringing up slaves here is not a call for liberation. He isn't saying what many of us have come to expect the Bible has to say about slavery. And I'm making this point because it shows us why context is important. Because we've come to expect that every time slavery is mentioned in the Bible, what we ought to do is make some kind of apologetic or even an outright apology for it. But that's not what Peter does. He's not telling us to pity them. He's not telling them that they can pity themselves. He doesn't say that there's no way for them to make an impact for the kingdom of God as long as they're still serving their masters. He doesn't tell them to rise up and revolt against cruel masters. The God-inspired scripture tells slaves to endure unjust suffering from their masters. Verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now it's at this point that some diabolical, unbelieving critic can say, see, your God is just monstrous. He doesn't care about justice. Now, how can Peter say that enduring injustice is a blessing from God? Because as he says in the next verse, it's their calling from God. For to this you have been called, because... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
so that you may follow in his steps. Peter is teaching his flock just what he learned from Jesus. Jesus stripped down into the shameful clothing of a slave to wash the dirt off his disciples' feet. And just after doing that, he tells them why. In John 13, when he, that's Jesus, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is what Jesus said to his disciples on the night that one of them would betray him. On that night, when Peter will claim adamantly that he will stay by Jesus' side even if he has to die with him. But Peter was trusting in himself. He fell asleep when the Lord told him to pray. And when it came time to confess Jesus before others, his self-confidence evaporated before the terrifying accusations of a little girl. Now, Peter probably had the same questions that night as he went away weeping. He probably had the same questions that the unbelieving skeptic would have. How can God love justice and let this happen to Jesus? I I, I, I thought he was the promised Messiah, the one who would bring justice into the world. But now these terrible overlords, these Romans, have unjustly crucified him. What kind of God could let that happen? And in shock, full of fear and terror and dread, Peter locked himself up with the other disciples in the upper room. The same place Jesus had been with them and washed their feet just days before. Where he had said that they should follow his example. And I'm sure some of them, if they had the presence of mind, were thinking, what kind of example is it? Are we going to be hunted down and crucified in the same way Jesus was? And in the middle of all these thoughts of injustice and evil and death, someone else entered the room. He didn't come through the door that was bolted shut. And if anyone would have knocked on that door to be let in, 
the disciples would have probably wet themselves for fear. But he didn't need a door to join them in that room. God can just say to the wall, let me go through. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Consider being in that place. Your Lord and Master, the greatest person you've ever known, is condemned in an unjust mockery of a trial, beaten and crucified by the worst collection of wicked persons you've ever seen come together. And you expect that the next person to come through that door is one of those wicked men ready to drag you out and do the same to you. And the only thought worse than that is how despicable you are for betraying him because you abandoned him. And you know that in the next few moments, you will have to figure out how to go on if your fear and grief and shame don't just swallow you whole first. Do you remember feeling something like that? It's like you're in the middle of a tornado and your vision is blurred by all the dust and debris swirling around you. And the air is so heavy with dirt and sand that you could choke on it. And as you stand there, you wonder how long it's going to be until this tornado throws a truck at you. And your Jesus then is there, standing among you, with the words, Peace be with you. And he motions you as if saying, Come on, stand up. Come over here. Look, look at these wounds. Look here. It's me. It's really me. Here with you again. Peter, and this passage now quotes heavily from the prophet Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. Samantha read some of that passage this morning. Verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the example we are to follow. Because God is glorified when his people face injustice and endure by entrusting their lot to him. Jesus showed us how to do this. But he is so much more than our example. 
So I'm eight pages into my sermon manuscript, and I haven't even touched verse 24 yet. But my average preaching time is about 28 minutes, and Caleb's is about 48. So I've got 20 minutes before you all riot. Don't worry, I'm not going to go much longer. I've already plotted out at least one or maybe two more sermons on this one verse. I'm not going to cram I'm not going to cram it all in. But this verse, I'm going to read it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the kind of verse that a Puritan would write 160 pages of a book on. The Puritans were excellent at drawing out all the sweetness from a verse. Has anybody ever eaten raw honeycomb? You know, it's, it is very deliciously sweet, but you also get the distinct feeling of chewing on a crayon. You know, I, I do prefer honey to come in a little squeeze jar shaped like a bear. But that requires doing the work of getting it out of the beeswax. Now, if you're in a big hurry, you can go eat the whole comb, and you can make a candle out of whatever you can floss out of your teeth. But if you take the proper time to do it right and separate them, you not only end up with the delicious syrup of honey, you also have a useful wax, and you can do stuff with it. And You don't need to floss afterward. Now, the Puritans believed the wisdom of Solomon from Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. When you look deeply into the Bible, as we attempt to do every Sunday, and in our community groups, you are doing king's work. There's royal glory in searching out the depths of what God has planted in his scripture. Now, you may have noticed that the title of this sermon is just He Himself. And that's all the more that I want to focus on. Because Peter is being emphatic here. He wants us to be paying attention. He could have just said, he, but that's not what he did. That he himself. Now, you know that phrase, you know, you haven't seen someone for a long time, and they finally show up, and you might say something like, well, if it isn't the man himself. Now, that's a little bit weird. The man himself. It's not like you're really clarifying. You don't have to say it. It's not like you could have said, well, the man myself. The man herself. The man itself. What you're saying, you're emphasizing, 
Is it really you? So Peter, what he's doing, what he's emphasizing, he himself, what he's doing is he's getting us to stop in our tracks and consider who it is we're really dealing with right now. Who really is this Jesus? Because this is not just a good man who lived a life worthy of imitation. Now, Jesus did tell his disciples to follow his example. But he did it by saying this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Teacher and Lord. And by Peter's own confession, he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One. Chosen by God, who is named Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. Because as the angel told his mother Mary, he shall save his people from their sins. His crucifier, Pilate, was correct to write the King of the Jews above his cross because he is the true son of David, the heir who will sit on that throne forever. He is the prophet Moses said would come after him, who, like him, speaks with God face to face. He is the high priest of Judah who offered the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. He is the wisdom of God and the word of God and the only begotten Son of God through whom all things were made. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the way only a lamb can, by shedding his blood. He is the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory to rule. The Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. He is the Lord who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. The one, the only one who can say, I am who I am. One of you Germans say amen. Peter wants us to remember that's who we're talking about. The one who stepped into the swirling darkness of our world, who stepped into despair, terror, anxiety, grief, going right through the wall of death, and say to us, peace be with you. Emotions to us, come, see my hands, pierced hands, see my side, where blood and water flowed out to wash you clean of your sins. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Hallowed be your name. Oh, God, many glorious and beautiful names 
and titles that you take to yourself, that you give to yourself that we might know you. For you are high and lifted up. You are holy. You inhabit eternity. You are far too great for us to see you. Augustine said, I cannot show you God, not because he is not there to be seen, but because you do not have the eyes needed to see him. So Lord, you have stooped down to dwell with the lowly. We praise you. And Lord, would we all hear, would we all hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me with all the power of his word that can call death back to life. Oh Lord, Would you put that word into our mouths so that we can make your appeal, so that we can speak, and from our mouths come the words of Jesus Christ, come unto me, as sinners would hear and turn and be healed and be raised from the dead. We pray, asking in Jesus' name. Amen.